Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our get-together for the first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question to the heart at a time. And we mean that uh, quite literally and quite sincerely. It is your questions on the Bible that make up the content of each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, jump on in with your questions. Uh, There's a number of different ways that you can do that. Oftentimes we are asked, what is a good question? For a reason for hope. Well, pretty simple. If a question matters to you, it matters to us here on A Reason for Hope. All we ask is that your questions uh, be biblical in their orientation. That is, uh, you want to maybe explore God's Word in a deeper way, maybe a verse or two that's eluded your understanding. You'd like to get a better handle on that. We'd love to go there with you. Maybe you'd like to find out how to apply uh, the passages we find in God's Word, the current uh, challenges you're facing in life. Or maybe a skeptic or a non-believer has asked you a a tough question about your faith in Christ. We are all over that as well. Even if you're on the outside looking in at a personal relationship with God and you've got questions about the Christian faith, we would love for you to get on in and share those questions with us. Uh, if you'd like to talk about the events of the day from a biblical point of view, we are happy to do that. We stay out of the political stuff, but uh, we try to uh, take biblical principles and apply them to even the most contemporary events and uh, controversies that can swirl about us, both inside or outside the church. If you'd like to go there, we'd love to go there with you. And of course, if you'd like a heavenly heads up, uh, maybe a look ahead at where this world is going through biblical prophecy, we're all over that as well. Now, in order to connect with us and uh, be a part of uh, the journey, Sean, how can our listeners do that? Well, if you'd like to send us your questions by email, the address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Spelling is questions, plural, F-O-R, hope at gmail.com. If you want to know or verify the spelling of that, speaking too quickly, so we have more time for your questions, you can join us on any of our social media platforms where it will be spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen. You can take advantage of that at any time for its intended purpose. Note that if you want to join us on our website, first and most recommended, not just because we're tooting our own horn, but they can't censor us on our own platform, <laughs> yeah, it will be they'll, Calvary, they'll probably find a way. But <laughs> yeah, it'll be calvarychristianfellowship.com, C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be either sent to, if you're listening during our hours of live streaming, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, our streaming page, On the right-hand side of the screen, you can send your questions to us, or at the bottom of the screen, note the email address. Perhaps you'd like to listen to a previous broadcast or one of our church's local through-the-week Bible studies. You can also join us there as well. That will be playing automatically, as well as a countdown to the next broadcast, so you can note where that fits in your respective time zone. YouTube is A Reason for Hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And if you participate in any or all of those venues, we'll be keeping an eye out for your questions as they come in. But note, if time eludes us and we don't get to your question, 
please email them to us so that we don't lose track of them. We want to give the questions the time and attention and, I guess, uh, details and exposition they deserve. Yep. But when it comes down to it, uh, time ever trudges on, regardless of how much we protest it. So without further ado and not wasting any more time, we want to invest the first and best of it in prayer. Make sure that God's the one speaking, not yep. only preparing our hearts to receive his word, but effectively communicate it. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you that we can come before you as this broadcast begins and invite your presence here, invite your wisdom, invite your love. Lord, thank you that your word really is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Lord, I pray that uh, the subjects, the questions that we get into and the scriptures we share would be exactly on target for those who are joining us, those who are watching, those who are listening, and uh, that uh, this would be more than uh, just a time where we're intellectually built up in terms of understanding how to answer hard questions or or maybe deepening our uh, treasure trove of understanding in your word, but to help us to apply it as well and, and use this is one of those wonderful times where you tap us on the shoulder, where you kind of wink at us and let us know that you are really very much aware of the condition of your flocks and that each of the sheep of your hand is so precious and so special to you. May that love and that truth guide everything that we get into here today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, starting us off, once again, you want to send your questions to us. We will give priority. Not really a question, but a statement, and I guess it'll dovetail into a question. Uh, The individual who sent it along doesn't understand the intention or meaning of some of the Psalms. By this, in that some of his writings, David sounds like, for lack of better words, a whiner, or very judgmental of others. Please advise if I am not correctly understanding King David's statements. I guess in terms of intention as opposed to what's being communicated, let's first start with the Bible, and we'll work our way down into the types of Psalms. First, the Bible is not a book, it's a collection of books, 66 books in fact, with over 40 different authors spanning 1,500 years of human history, written in three different languages, and of course, Uh, in various cultural backgrounds without any sort of cross-examination or interference between them, yet they remain consistent on some of the most controversial subjects known to men. We do not believe that the Bible was written on gold tablets like Mormons or uh, Muslims and was sent down from heaven, but that as the Bible itself explains about itself, that the Uh, emphasis was that human authors were guided, literally inspired, by the Holy Spirit, and of course their thoughts, their personalities were directed by the mind of God. Now how this was directed comes in three categories, the types of literature that these books are collected in. Now the structure of the Bible, again Old and New Testament, not that there's a new version of God, but a testament or a covenant is the terms of a relationship with God. The Old Covenant begins and ends with the covenant of Moses. The New Testament begins and ends with the covenant of the Messiah. So note those points. In the New and Old Testaments, they both follow the same format. There is the history section from Genesis all the way to Esther. You're getting chronological history as far as and with the intention of the focus being on the nation of Israel. So if you want to know what happened, you start in the what section, the history. Then you go to Job, and suddenly we're around Genesis maybe 14, 15-ish as far as the timeline is concerned. 
And that throws people for a bit, but the reason isn't because the Bible's out of order, it's in a structure. We've stepped into a new category. The poetry section of the Old and New Testaments are meant to use expressive language in order to communicate these points in a way not just guiding facts, but informing feelings and perspectives on them. Right. Now, that's just as important as knowing what happened as why it happened, the sort of attitude we need to bring towards those events. The history can certainly give us passing insights into the fact God wasn't pleased with what was going on, but if we take the time to read Job through Song of Solomon, we see the emotional aspect of our God as well. And as these human authors, of course, Job was written by, and it's usually attributed to Job, and then compiled compiled by Moses. Also, the books of Moses speak for themselves. Uh, Some would argue the concluding chapters written by Joshua, neither uh, here nor there as far as the significance of that. Uh, Joshua, of course, in noting those details and continuing on. The Psalms have a number of authors. uh, Based on the last time I was able to teach on them in a broad sense. I'll verify this in a moment. But we've got maybe around 20 or so authors as far as the Psalms are concerned. The ones that I can name right off the bat, obviously yeah. the majority were attributed to King David. There were a few, a handful Solomon, given to yeah. Moses, uh, one to Solomon, or two to Solomon. Yeah. And of course, uh, other worship leaders that were serving at or beyond the time of King David, the descendants of Korah are attributed. He was the cousin of Moses and uh, interesting Interestingly enough, tried to lead a coup d'etat against him, but his children obviously fell very far from the tree. They uh, formed those worship songs that were legitimate sources of Scripture. We've got individuals like Asaph, who was the worship leader at the time of King David and so forth, uh, Psalms of Ascent, uh, Orphanic Psalms, where we don't know the author, but was attributed by the rabbis that examined them, tested them according to Scripture, and they passed, and so on it goes. But when we look at all these different perspectives, obviously we all have different kinds of people. And then, of course, stepping into Isaiah through Malachi, to focus on the nature of the question, prophecy, speaking from God's perspective. The Gospels through Acts would be the history section of the New Testament. The letters to uh, to Rome all the way to the letter by Jude would be the... um, poetry of the New Testament, in a sense, guiding you through the history, what's the significance of what Jesus said and did. And then finally, Revelation is the only prophecy book of the New Testament. But, but I guess getting down to the issue about David and uh, the the sense of, uh, say, uh, being uh, whiny. whiny or judgmental of others, uh, you know, Joni, I would say that uh, maybe the best way to understand all of this along with, as you've done a great job of, of laying out where the Psalms fits in uh, to the whole flow of the Word of God. You know, the Psalms have been called the daily diary of uh, a man flat out in love with God. And uh, the, I guess the, the point that I would emphasize there, uh, Joni, is that we're talking about a man. Uh, we're talking about King David. And uh, like other men, you discover that King David was as fallen and uh, full of flaws as you and I are. And yet the Lord looked upon him with favor by his grace, called him a man after his own heart. Uh, That didn't mean certainly that David was perfect, that he always got it right. But even when he got it wrong, he inevitably uh, dealt with it. He never drifted in terms of having a loyal heart towards God. 
And, and so when we read the Psalms, I guess, Joni, the thing that I find uh, most encouraging about it is the fact that King David can be so brutally honest uh, in terms of his uh, expression of feelings uh, to God, uh, even when they would come across to us as not being super spiritual. You know, as uh, a pastor, I've been in full-time ministry since 1981. I know there's a lot of pressure on spiritual leaders not to ever look like you've got feet made of clay. You know, look like you've got it together, that you're standing on the rock, that nothing ever bothers you and nothing ever moves you. Uh, And uh, that's what people kind of expect. And sometimes, uh, unfortunately, I think pastors kind of play into that with the, the sad conclusion that people will put their faith and trust in a pastor rather than putting their faith and trust in the Lord. And so what we see in the Psalms, I think, were, were cautionary tales, if you will, as far as the whiny parts you mentioned go. Uh, first of all, uh, I think they're included there so that people wouldn't put David up on more of a pedestal than he deserved. Obviously, he was Israel's greatest king. Uh, obviously, he was the one that God promised that uh, from his descendants would come the Messiah himself who would have a kingdom that would never end. Certainly, uh, the, the Bible doesn't denigrate King David, but neither does it exalt him and make him into someone superhuman. And, and I think that is something that is really encouraging, because if God could look at a guy like David and say, wow, uh, you know, certainly not without mistakes, sometimes huge mistakes, but my grace was sufficient for him, uh, you know, I look at that and it tells me that God's grace is sufficient for me. And uh, when I read the whiny parts of the Psalms, confess before you, uh, Joni, there are times where I'm kind of whiny. There are times where I will look at my life and circumstances and be saying, why me? Why do I have to go through all of this? Well, it's not a great question to ask uh, because we probably wouldn't like the answer. Probably the best answer we'll get is why not you uh, in light of uh, who you are and the mess you've kind of made of your life. But, but when we go into those times, it's just interesting to be able to see that God's people down through time have felt that way. That, that, that there are people that have expressed those same sort of things. And you know what? God uh, would, uh, would even honor that. And, and I think there's a reason why he honors that. Uh, in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse 5, we read this. Uh, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now catch this. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. You know, what this tells me is just as David could express to God all of his cares without censorship, without uh, gussing it up, say, talking like a, uh, I don't know, like a 16th century Englishman or something like that. Uh, You know, he just poured out his heart before the Lord. God wants me to have that same kind of uh, ability to come before him. Interesting, when we are told that we can come boldly before the throne of grace in the book of Hebrews, the word boldly is two Greek words fused together. It's one word that means to say, and the other word means anything. So we can say anything to God. And, you know, the thing that I have found is this, you know, I I think we can make a mistake sometimes in ministry of uh, standing before our congregation and, you know, kind of opening a vein and bleeding out before people. Um, You know, that 
tends to be cathartic, I think, for the person who's doing it. I don't know uh, how encouraging it is for the people watching it. The thing I've discovered is this. The Lord's my refuge. You know, he's the one I can come to. He's the one that I can say anything to because he already knows my heart. And, and I think those Psalms represent that. As far as being judgmental is concerned, kind of same principle, don't you think? Uh, it, it's better to uh, be bringing say, our judgmental thoughts uh, about uh, people that have let us down or have wronged us flat out uh, to the Lord who can do something about it than uh, letting him stew and fester within our hearts, allowing a root of bitterness to take over. So, uh, you know, it's been said when you're angry at somebody, it's always best to express it, uh, to feel it, and then to let go of it. Uh, if we express that anger on a horizontal level, sometimes we can get into trouble because uh, if you do something, you can undo it. But if you say something, you can never unsay it. Uh, and, and so what better place to take our our frustrations, our angers, our thoughts about what we'd like to see uh, happen to somebody who's hurt us and harmed us and to bring them before the Lord because the Lord understands, uh, the Lord uh, already knows that we feel that way. And as we express them before the Lord, that frees his spirit to start reminding us of the scriptures, reminding us maybe of the mercies that we've received uh, and how gracious God has been to us and that he will give us the power to forgive and let go of people that we have bitterness toward if uh, we'll bring those sort of things to him. So I, I think those are a few reasons why those uh, whiny or judgmental psalms are there. Anything you'd add to that? Well, just clarify terms. If you say whiny as opposed to honest, it's not going to obviously lessen the degree of what's being said. We talked about there being types of psalms as well. Imprecatory would be those that are literally cursing. That's what imprecatory means. And he's bringing his concerns, his desire for judgment against his enemies before God. And notice, not acting on it himself. And atheists will bring this up from time to time and say, see, the violence says to smash children's heads against rocks. No, it was discussing a time where the Babylonians had smashed their children's heads against rocks, and the psalm concludes by saying, may God do to you what you did to us. A call for justice is not a call for infanticide. Likewise, right. if we ask yeah, the question, that's huge. and that's important because yeah. note, it's poetry, and if you understand the type of literature, you'll avoid, or at least be able to point out, that mishandling of the passage. If we note David's attitude and personality, it ties back to, again, the nature of Scripture. Their personality is being expressed honestly before God, and as my father outlined, this gives us the opportunity as well to be as equally honest, not to act like David in the way that he coped with things, but to understand that as the New Testament, uh, I guess, expounds for us, that we can come boldly, the author of Hebrews says, before the throne of grace, literally to enter into the presence of God and to say anything. So note those points and make sure that when it comes to even self-defeating ideas like David's being too judgmental. Yeah, everyone comes to conclusions about what they hear, but if you don't like his conclusions, <laughs> the question is, what kind of conclusions were they? Yeah, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be laughing, but it's funny when someone says, uh, oh, David seems so judgmental. Isn't that kind of a judgmental attitude yeah, right judgmental, there? Yeah. Ju David's judgmental <laughs> attitude. So. Yeah, David said, uh, well, try, try living in the circumstances I did, and then we'll get back to you on 
being judgmental. Yeah, <laughs> coup d'état led yeah. by your own son and uh, yeah, other well, things. Other so. things, yeah. So anyway, um, let us know if that helps you out, and thank you for starting us off on that note. Uh, now into my field. Got a question from Mac, who met a Muslim who told Ooh. him that he believes in the Quran and mentioned Jesus, but not as God. Doesn't the Quran talk about Christians? He seems like a nice guy, but we're divided by our beliefs. I wonder why I know what that what I believe is true, but so does he. I know Jesus is the only way, thou. Um, again, Mac, I'm glad you're communicating with Muslims, and God bless you for doing so. Uh, when it comes to the Quran's perspective on Christians, there's a few places that I could go, but if you want to, I guess, be on the inside baseball, the word the Quran uses to describe Christians and Jews, most translations in English, will render it as such. But in Arabic, it is Kitab. And again, you don't have to know the Arabic, but it means people of the book. So in reference to the book that we've been given, it's in reference to our scriptures that we were given, as Surah 3, 3 through 4 says, revelation from Allah, and that we're supposed to judge by it, otherwise Allah calls us rebels. And noting in Surah 18, 27 that the words of Allah cannot be changed, we stand on the same authority that Muslims do when they claim the Quran. Now, the most important thing, and again, I can go through plenty of passages, say, for example, uh, your Muslim friend disobeyed the Quran in Surah 551, where it says, O ye who believe, take not Jews and Christians for your friends, they are friends of each other. And amongst you that turns to them, that is for friendship, is one of them. Verily, Allah guides not the people who are unjust. So what's interesting is that the Quran puts a fierce dichotomy and us versus them mentality between Muslims and Christians. And if you're friends with Christians and Jews, that means you're one of them. And then by definition, a kafir. A kafir is a word used to describe an unbeliever. Those who are under the curse of Allah. And note the reason we're under that curse is given in the same chapter, Surah 5 and verse 64. The Jews say Allah's hand is fettered, but their hands are fettered, and they are accusing for saying so. Both hands is spread out wide in bounty, and he bestoweth what he will. That which has been revealed to thee from thy Lord is certain to increase the consummity and disbelief of many of them. And we have cast them among the enmity and hatred until the day of resurrection. As long as they light a fire for war, Allah extinguish it. Their effort for corruption in the land, Allah loveth not corruptors. And then it also notes that Christians are also blasphemers in the verses to follow in eight verses later, Surah 572. They blaspheme who say Allah is Christ, son of Mary. But said Christ, this is quoting Jesus according to the Quran, O children of Israel, worship Allah, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with Allah, Allah will forbid him the garden, and the fire will be his abode, for there will be wrongdoers and no one to help. So Jews and Christians are the enemies of Muslims. Jews and Christians make belief claims that put them under the curse of Allah. Now this is where the good news comes in, because your Muslim Muslim friend apparently doesn't take Islam very seriously. That's a very good thing, because people who take their religion seriously and define it the way Islam does are dangerous. That being said, 
encourage the relationship and make sure that this is something that you can cultivate long term. If there's anything that you want to talk about with Muslims, it's the same thing you'd want to talk about with anybody. Who is Jesus? The Quran claims that Isa bin Miriam, or Jesus, son of Mary, was just a prophet, a mighty prophet, a sinless prophet, the only one to ever have claimed to do so. He was born of a virgin. He performed miracles. He claimed to be the word of Allah. You can hold them to that if you want to do more research. But what's interesting about it as well is that for all the things they have in common with us, there is one that is against, and this is the key. The Quran objectively and definitively denies that Jesus was or ever will be crucified, that he was not killed historically, but so it was made appear to them, so 4157 says, and Allah is a, uh, raised him up to himself, and he is, of course, the one who has power over all things. They have this weird structure to talking. But the point being made is that they will deny the historical crucifixion of Jesus. Now, if you want to, and this is in, of course, later conversations with your Muslim friend, or maybe send them our way. I'll uh, welcome the challenge. The point being made is just that. Walk them through, perhaps, the historical work and criticisms of guys like Lee Strobel and J. Warner Wallace, who themselves, as atheists, went through the historical claims of the crucifixion of Jesus and concluded it was a historical fact. If your Muslim friend cares about history, then he's going to have to choose one or the other, the Quran or history. That's a verifiably false claim and, of course, a fundamental claim for Christian belief, because if Jesus didn't die, he didn't rise from the dead. There's other things that you can talk about him, but for the sake of time, I'll encourage that. And also, if you want to get specifically on a Muslim perspective on these things, this is for your own reading. I encourage Nabil Qureshi's book. He wrote Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, and explaining his journey, not just doctrinally, but emotionally, in sorting out all the things that he was raised with as a child, all the persecution that he experienced as a result of acknowledging that Jesus was not just the Messiah, but that the Messiah means, as the Bible identifies him, the God uh, the God man, God the Son. So when we're talking about these issues, understand that there's going to be a lot of dictionary work, there's going to be a lot of groundwork, there's going to be a lot of terms that Muslims will use, but also not mean the same things as us. It's a very keen challenge, but if you can meet this man on his own terms, you can meet him as a friend and he understands that you care about him, make sure that you also find him as someone who's concerned with truth, because while he is very disobedient to his Quran in being friends with you, hopefully that will be enough footwork for the Holy Spirit to use both of you for his glory. And that Nabil Qureshi book is just outstanding, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, no yeah. God But One is also a more intellectual approach, but I'd encourage seeking a lot, finding Jesus yeah. as a priority. Hey, I uh, want to uh, give a shout out uh, to uh, one of our uh, regular uh, viewers uh, overseas uh, who is pretty much on the front line sharing the Lord with Muslims, who is an ex-Muslim himself. Uh, Adani uh, uh, sends us a shout out uh, from uh, Nigeria. Please be in prayer for him and uh, the uh, Calvary Chapel Bible School he is running in his region, where he's discipling a number of young men and their faith. Great to hear from you, Adni. And uh, he writes, hello, pastors. Please, I have two questions for Matthew 11, 11. Number one, what does least in the kingdom mean? And in what ways is the least in the kingdom 
greater than John. Thanks. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great question, Adni. Uh, I can remember uh, being in seminary and we spent uh, man an entire class uh, just even talking about this. It was on the difficult sayings of Jesus, and this certainly is one of them. The context of all this is John the Baptist sending emissaries to Jesus asking him if he was, in fact, the promised one, or should they look for someone else? The reason for John sending those emissaries was that he had been arrested and uh, thrown in jail uh, by Herod at this point, and uh, was uh, pretty much uh, on his way to a very uh, ignominious kind of death uh, at, uh, as, a, as a result of some really outrageous circumstances. So uh, when John's emissaries asked Jesus this, he was healing people and doing his ministry, and he says, tell John uh, what you see and, uh, and what you are hearing. He, goes, he said, uh, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me, or literally has not stumbled because of me. Well, John the Baptist understood an awful lot about Jesus and who he was. If you don't believe that's true, read through John chapter 3, where uh, John essentially says, man, I'm not the Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. I'm like the friend of the bridegroom who stands with him, uh, but uh, I'm not the bridegroom. I'm uh, Isaiah 40. I'm yeah. rolling out the red carpet. I'm yeah. not the main event. Yeah. And, uh, and then as they departed, Jesus said to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I will send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, and here's verse 11, Among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, what in the world is he saying there? Well, what he is saying, in essence, is as far as pivotal people in God's plan, and I can't think of any greater honor that any human being will ever receive than being a pivotal person in the midst of God's plan, no one had been raised up who was greater than John. Now, that doesn't mean that John the Baptist was greater than Abraham. That doesn't mean that John the Baptist is greater than Daniel. It doesn't mean that John the Baptist is greater than David. But they were all on a par as far as God was concerned. Why? Because they all had an equal part in bringing Messiah into the world. It wasn't their worth in the kingdom of heaven or even their status. It was their opportunity to introduce it. Yeah. David got to reveal a lot of God's character. Abraham got to embody a lot of God's character. Yeah. But who got to be the guy who, if you're familiar with like the Will Smith meme where he's just doing this to yeah. present somebody, who got to do that? Who <laughs> just say, this is yeah. it? And, and, and it's not the, the rank of these people that Jesus is emphasizing. Rather, it's the role. And there is no greater role at, leading up to this point than what John the Baptist had. Isaiah chapter 40 prophesied to him directly as the one who would be the forerunner of the Messiah. Not a lot of people in the, this age or the previous age got a uh, prophecy from Isaiah directly attributed to them. Uh, you know, the idea of preparing the hearts of Israel to receive Messiah when he actually came. How would Israel have this heavenly heads up? 
that Messiah was actually on the scene. Well, one of the signs they could look for was the fact that this forerunner had shown up. And so John the Baptist uh, wonderfully and beautifully fulfilled that role. Didn't make him greater than David, greater than Abraham, greater than name your Old Testament saint, but it put him right on a par with that because they all had the same role to play. Uh, It wasn't a question of rank. Uh, Without any of them, without any of these pieces of the puzzle, the plan of God doesn't come off. Uh, And so God uses all of them. In fact, he's saying uh, that John the Baptist did that and a whole lot more. But then he says something else. He says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that constitute? Well, that constitutes what Jesus has come to bring. What John the Uh, Baptist could bear witness to but never experienced. Yeah. In other words, Jesus preaching was the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yeah, I am the kingdom of heaven. And wherever the king is, there you have the kingdom. So the king of kings and lord of lords is there among God's people. John the Baptist never got the opportunity, although he... Got closer than anyone else. (laughs) Led up to the ministry of Jesus, prepared the way for the ministry of Jesus. He was unfortunately beheaded before he had the opportunity to see Jesus crucified and rise from the dead. That is when the kingdom of God came in its fullness. And as a result of that, those who are around and understand what God has done for them, what he's provided us through the death and resurrection of Jesus, forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's forever family, the indwelling power of God's Holy Spirit poured out, not just in fits and starts and for certain tasks, but a continual experience of that within our lives. These are all privileges given to every member of the kingdom of God going forward because of what Jesus has done that Old Testament saints could only dream of. I mean, they were looking forward to the things that have been now announced to you, as Simon Peter said. Uh, These prophets searched the scriptures diligently to try to find out what was going on. But now these things have been revealed to us. We have that fullness of understanding. We have that fullness of blessing. We have that fullness of relationship with God based upon grace through faith, the fullness of our forgiveness of sins. So the least person you know, and you know, we, we could the say, deathbed okay, convert, if yeah, you will. yeah, I think that's a great definition of it. Someone who just gets in by the, the hair of their chinny chin chin, so to speak, is in a sense greater in terms of privilege, greater in terms of blessing by God, but not in status than John the Baptist could ever be. Uh, not in terms of rank, uh, but once again, in role, because we are part of. God's forever family. We are part of the church, the body of Christ. It is God has given us a different relationship with him than even the greatest people under the law of Moses and the prophets could ever have. The fullness of time had come. God fulfilled his great promises and uh, his program through the person of Jesus Christ. And now, even like that, you mentioned, that last uh, second deathbed conversion person is an inheritor of these great promises and status before God. And even going forward into heaven, being part of the bride of Christ. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about that in the book of Revelation, our studies in that. Uh, you know, we, we see that, and, and that's what Jesus was getting at. It was, in essence, what Jesus was saying is, John the Baptist hit a home run. He is the greatest prophet who ever lived. He actually pointed out 
the actual coming of, of Messiah himself. The others could make prophecies about it, bits, fits and starts. They could say, I, I, I see him, but not now. I, I hear him, but, but not near, as we see in, in uh, the, the prophecies in the Old Testament. John the Baptist says, here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. yeah, it's like the old uh, talk show uh, guest joke where they were talking about, say, for example, astronauts and how uh, they were given a singular honor among people who studied space. Very few people in history have had the opportunity to say, hey, where's the moon? There it is, yeah. pointing down. Yeah. Well, very few people in Jewish history have had the opportunity to say, right. where's the Messiah? There right. he is. Right. Now, if we're talking about the least in the kingdom of heaven— Anyone who receives a personal relationship with Jesus, the post-John the Baptist conversion, has literally the opportunity to say, hey, where's Jesus? There he is. Yeah. And that's the point. That is so cool. I can't add a single thing to that. All right. Um, (laughs) Hope that helps you add me. Great to hear from you. Question on YouTube, uh, who wants to know, why is the word hell used in translations of the Bible, as well as Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, Tartarus, and others? Um, uh, We'll start with the dictionary. Hell is an old English word. It just means the place of the dead, and that's what it would literally translate to if you were speaking in Hebrew, Sheol, the grave. Right. And of course, uh, I believe Hades is Greek. Um, yes. You can clarify. Yeah, that, that is Greek. Yeah. But the, the point of emphasis is just that. It's a word that communicates the place of the dead. Now, we need to be careful, and this will be relevant when we get into Tartarus here in a moment. When the Greeks used a word, they also carry with it some meaning, and that is what needs to be made distinct. When the Bible talks about the place of the dead, it is in a very broad sense saying, if you're dead, this is where you are. If you go to the Greek mythology of the Theogony, for instance, the earliest source on Greek myth that we have. They have all these lurid details about the underworld and the nature of anything that you reference that, the the circles of hell, the abode for the titans, the Tartarus, if you will. But all these words were just words. They attributed to the meaning in the same way that, for example, we would use uh, the title of Wolverine and say, am I describing some sort of angry badger from New Zealand, or am I describing a... Or Michigan, uh, for that matter, yeah. yeah. Or am I describing uh, Hugh Jackman's characters portrayed in the X-Men comics? Those are two very different things. Right. But the point of emphasis is just that. Words mean things, and if you let the source of that word mean its thing, you won't get confused. And this is why things like Gehenna and Tartarus are important. Gehenna is kind of more specific because, again, that's, I believe, an Aramaic term. If I'm not wrong yes. about that, yes, uh, it's a reference to the Valley of Hinnom, which was just a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. That location was used as an illustration of hell by Jesus, as just a place you don't want to go. Right, it was a place of perpetual burning and well, garbage dump. It, stank. it was also where Solomon set up a uh, an altar to Moloch, which is worshipped with infant sacrifice. Thus the so reason, it was a place of, of intense evil. Yeah, thus the reason why they made it into a garbage dump. They yeah. didn't want to revisit that history. But the point then being made is Tartarus, and again, uh, the Apostle Peter uses the word Tartarus, which in Greek, I know that, is just the heart of the earth. And the word Tartarus in Greek mythology, again, also means the heart of the earth, but it's applied to be this abode and place where the Titans are imprisoned, and Kronos, the father of Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades, is being, uh, you know, tortured as a result of him existing, I guess, and all these other interesting facets. But the point being made is the Greek sources, the non-Christian pagan sources say, this is what I mean by Tartarus. What do the Christian sources mean by Tartarus? 
the heart of the earth. And how is it applied? Well, it's a place where demons are chained. Now, there'll be teachers who then take that and say, oh, so Kronos is a demon? Back to your prune juice. The point being made is this, though. (laughs) When we're talking about words, let the text define them and the extent of them. Uh, As far as, again, the significance of these things, the word hell is an English equivalent that Sheol would communicate, and Hades, and Tartarus to a point. But Tartarus would be more an example of the abyss or abuso, depending on what language you're talking about. The good news is, though, if I introduce myself in English, Spanish, or Japanese, everyone who is the audience of that statement is going to understand what I'm saying. If I say, yo llamo Sean, my name is Sean, or watashi wa Sean this. It's all going to come out as the same meaning, but because I use different words and sounds in different order, that's secondary. So just follow that reasoning. Um, here's a fun, fun question from Nina, who wants yeah. to know about missionary dating, uh, being unequally yoked with unbelievers, and this phrase, what's that referring to? If her intent is to win them over for Christ, is that a good or emphasis on my part? Bad idea. Well, a couple things I'd say, Nina. First of all, two thumbs up for wanting to reach people uh, with the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, A lot of people will say, well, you know, one of the ways I want to reach people is through uh, the social uh, activity or connection that you have with dating. And so uh, you date non-Christians, and hopefully as you show the love of Jesus Christ to them, they will want to become Christians as well because they've had an up-close and personal view of uh, what a Christian is all about. That's the thinking behind it. Uh, There's some problems with that, though, Nina. Uh, First of all, the Bible tells us in uh, no uncertain terms not to be unequally yoked with non-believers. Maybe you've heard that passage before out of uh, 1 Corinthians. Uh, Just quoting Joel 2, by the way. Yeah, well, uh, again, uh, Paul goes on to say, for what fellowship has light with darkness uh, or sin with righteousness or Christ with Belial, which is another name for the wicked one. A worthless one. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the, 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 the bottom line is this. What Paul is saying is, as far as committed relationships are concerned, we shouldn't yoke ourselves in that situation. Why? Because we are unequally yoked. It's interesting that he uses that phrase, Nina, because in that day and age, that meant an awful lot. You know, the rough equivalent of a John Deere tractor of that time was an ox. And if you had two oxen, so much the better. And so uh, maybe you've seen pictures of oxes uh, plowing fields. Uh, Still goes on in Asia and third world countries and so on. And uh, what you'll notice is there's a wooden bar that is across the shoulders of the oxen. Well, if you have two oxes and you're going to use them to plow together, it was a very important thing to train those oxes to be able to walk at the same cadence in the right way. You couldn't just take any old two oxes and put them on the same yoke together because first the yoke would have to be custom designed to fit precisely the shoulders of those oxes or they would end up getting, you know, uh, I guess we would come, for lack of better term, uh, abrasions, saddle sores, if you will. And once they got that, they were worthless for pulling anything. The other thing that you would find is unless those oxen were trained to walk in the same cadence together, same thing would happen. Because, again, there would be unequal pressure on that particular yoke. And you would take these very expensive, very valuable animals and essentially make them only worthwhile for barbecue someday because they really wouldn't 
ever be able to pull uh, as they were designed to do. Well, you know, again, I imagine you could take a John Deere tractor and use it uh, as a tent in your backyard, but that's not really what it was created to do. Be a huge waste of money to do something like that. And so the phrase unequally yoked that we find there that Paul uses is talking about that. What he's saying is, is that the most important relationship that we have is our relationship with Jesus. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 3, it was funny, I was reading uh, uh, Chuck Smith's commentary on the book of Acts, and he was quoting, uh, he was showing how uh, uh, Stephen was quoting from the book of Amos, and he said, how many of us can even uh, know one verse from the book of Amos? Well, I know one for sure. Amos chapter 3 and verse 3 says, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? Now, here's where uh, the dating thing becomes problematic. As soon as you start dating someone, uh, implicit in that relationship is that you are looking to deepen a relationship with each other. Hopefully. If, if all goes well in a dating relationship, what is the point of dating in most situations? If all goes well, you really hit it off, uh, you know, you've got a lot of things in common, you really enjoy each other's company, what happens? Well, you're looking for commitment to each other. Now, what the scripture is saying is this, is if you enter into a committed relationship with somebody and uh, say it's based on attraction or based on shared interests or, or, or based on physical chemistry, uh, all well and good. But sooner or later, those things tend to fall by the wayside. Uh, the most important value that we have to have, and I think the single greatest predictor a future relationship success. I don't mean to be like Tinder of the air for you guys here. But if you want to have success in your personal relationships, the greater amount of commonality you have with each other. I know you hear sometimes opposites attract. But the greater amount of commonality you have, more often than not, opposites drive each other crazy. Yeah. That, that's what eventually happens. But, but the more commonality, say you got these two people, and the more commonality you have, the more overlap you have in that relationship, the better chance you have for a satisfying, growing, long-term committed relationship to happen. The less commonality you have, the greater chance you have that sooner or later you're going to drive each other crazy because your values aren't the same, your desires aren't the same, your goals aren't the same, and you end up uh, drifting apart unless one person just cashes in all their values and then that's not much of a relationship anyway you just phony it up to keep the other person happy you don't want that so what do you want you want somebody that shares your most important value and for me i'll say personally the most important value i have in my life is the love relationship i share with jesus christ man i want to tell you something nina when uh, i get up in the morning uh, my wife Pam and I, uh, we, we have a, a time of, of devotions together. Uh, we, we go through the Word a little bit. We pray with each other. And man, I'll tell you, it's like one of the, the most wonderful experiences I have to hear from my wife that she is as excited about God and the things of God and growing in that relationship with God as I am. And uh, when you realize that you share the love of God with each other. I realize something. I don't have to be worried that my wife is going to fall out of love with me 
because she loves me with the love of Jesus Christ. She doesn't have to worry about me, you know, finding someone that I have more commonalities with or, or I might find uh, more attractive. Why? Because the thing that bonds us together, as I told her early on in our relationship, is God has given me a great love for her, and it's only gotten better as time goes on. We're going on our 30th wedding anniversary. And I'll tell you, I feel like I am more in love, more delighted to spend time with my wife than uh, I was the day we got married. And, and that's the kind of blessing that God wants us to have. You know, if we allow at the beginning of our search, in a sense, for the right one, or soulmate, as Uncle Rico would say in Napoleon Dynamite, if we don't have some non-negotiables in place to determine who we're going to be in a relationship with and who we're not, biblical non-negotiables, guess what? We can't really expect God to bless our search. We can't say, God, I really want you to make me happy, but I'm not going to pay a single thing, uh, a bit of attention to anything you say in your word about how to find happiness. So God has shown us that pathway. He wants us not to look upon the outside appearance, but to look upon the heart. Uh, he wants us to have uh, a commonality so that we can say uh, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, he wants us to uh, have uh, all things in common. How can we walk together unless we be agreed? Uh, well, we need to be agreed on the most important thing. And the most important thing that my wife and I agree on that makes our relationship a blessing every day is, man, at the end of the day, we want to know Jesus better. And I think if you've got that in place, you got something. If you start out with the idea, well, you know, it's like uh, when I was growing up, there was a program called the Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, it sounds pretty cheap right now, but $6 million back then was a lot of money. And it uh, said, Steve Ast Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive after this test pilot crash. And they said, we can rebuild him. We can make him better than he was before. Uh, I'll tell you, I have run into people that ha are just miserable in their post-marital uh, situation because they had that mentality. They looked and said, well, you know, the material's not all that great, but I think we can work with it. You know, they were looking at the outside. They weren't looking at the soul. They weren't looking at the heart. Does that mean we can't be friends with non-believers? No. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. And I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you'd have to go out of this world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. What Paul is saying is this. Nothing wrong with having friends who aren't believers. We can build relationships with them. And again, the question earlier about having a Muslim friend and talking with them. Great opportunity to be able to share. Nabil Qureshi yeah, was led uh, to faith in Christ by his friendship with a Christian, David Wood who shared uh, the gospel with him. So that, that, that happens. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. You've probably heard that before. But I would safeguard that area of your life, your dating area of your life, and reserve that area only for people whose relationship with God you look up to and admire. That should be the first thing 
that you look at. Didn't Levi Lesko have a saying or two about that? Christian Dating 101, run hard after Jesus. If someone uh, keeps up, introduce yourself. Yeah, I think that's probably the safest thing for you, Nina. But we get asked that a lot, and uh, I'll tell you, it's much easier to decide before you get committed to a relationship what you're looking for. Have your non-negotiables. You know, a relationship with God that you admire, growth in their walk with God, that they've got a relationship with the Lord. It's not just phoning it up to get on your good side for whatever motives they want to get out of you. Uh, but, but someone you really look up to and admire and respect, because after all the excitement and glamour and glitz of the wedding gets over, that's what you're left with, the relationship. You know, the relationship you have heart to heart. So, But, Pastor Scott, I hear them say, doesn't 1 Corinthians 7 literally spell out for us missionary dating in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verses 18 on, or 16 rather onward? But how do you know, a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, a husband, whether you will save your wife? Isn't that literally laying out Nina's intentions here? Well, no. What that's saying is to a group of individuals who are brand new Christians and in a thoroughly pagan culture like Corinth, uh, individuals had gotten uh, married beforehand. Marriage is already in place. They're and, not dating. They are married. Right. One of them comes to salvation. The other hasn't necessarily. Does that then mean you divorce them or you continue to be a witness to them in those circumstances? Note, those specific circumstances. Let me read verse 10. Now to the married, not to the dating, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to, or not I but the Lord, the Lord speaking here, this is an absolute statement, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, this can be applied in broader strokes, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, notice, not is pursuing a wife, has, has. a wife, yeah. and also likewise, she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her, in application of verse 10. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But, verse 15, if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Now, what case has been set up? Not you're dating someone. They're not a Christian, but I can fix them. No, this isn't Dateline. It's talking about somebody yeah. who you are presently married to and that you have now come to a saving relationship with God, but they haven't in these cases. And note, God has called us to peace. Or how do you know a wife, whether you will save your husband? Now, there's a follow-through that's worth addressing, but we'll leave that as a layup maybe for future broadcasts, where they say, oh, so if uh, you got a Christian mom but not a Christian uh, dad, does that mean that the kids are saved by proxy? No, we'll be happy to go into more detail about that. The short answer would be you're exposed to the gospel the same way that the husband is being, and that God can work with that in more ways than if it was two non-believers. Yeah. But uh, we'll go into more detail if you would like, Nina, but uh, just note preemptively, that passage is an encouraging missionary dating. It's a bad idea, yeah. and that's the point that we want to emphasize. So again, it's tough to, you know, have a legitimate attraction to someone, but having to not necessarily control yourself, but just hold yourself to your own standards and say, 
I want to be smarter about my relationships, and as a wise man once observed, uh, your marital decisions will bring you as either close to heaven or as close to hell as this world will allow. So right. choose carefully, and I give this advice as well for those who are following my YouTube ministry, choose patiently. And as the elder would add on to that as well, choose pickily, yeah. choose explicitly. Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, before uh, we went on the air, there were some uh, people that had questions about the brouhaha that has uh, come about by uh, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina proposing a national uh, abortion ban after 15 weeks in pregnancy, that that would be the federal law of the land, and uh, as a result, supersede any state laws that would, uh, say, put uh, greater restrictions on abortion. You know, it's funny, uh, when you take a look at that off the bat, uh, first uh, people are going, well, you know, that's, that's good, because in Europe, uh, uh, virtually every uh, country there has an abortion ban after 15 weeks. So, um, you know, after, uh, before 15, after 15 weeks, uh, we can guarantee the safety and health of the child. And uh, uh, just as a quick clarification for those listening, 15 weeks of pregnancy is where the baby has a determined gender, all their organs are fully functional, they are able to react to lights and sounds, facial muscles, and their kidneys in particular are beginning to function, and of course they have explicitly defined fingernails, they can kick and hiccup with their diaphragm intact, they have reflexes, they can breathe, and they can feel pain. So okay, if and, we were and, to... And that's the, the last part. Yeah. The feel pain part. That happens at the eighth week, by the yeah. way. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, the, the reaction that has uh, come out of all of that. Uh, it, it's like this is one bill that both sides, I guess, can agree uh, is uh, just uh, reprehensible in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, uh, the liberal side of things, the pro-abortion side of things, uh, Chris Hayes of MSNBC said a 15-week abortion ban is a national abortion ban. Calling it late term is just objectively wrong. Pregnancy is 40 weeks, so even in the roughest, most reductive mathematical sense, it is not late term. Okay, well, I would agree with him on that. It is not a late term abortion ban. It could involve late term abortions. But as you mentioned, Sean, at 15 weeks... Uh, you are dealing with a fully formed human being. You know, this is not what I would call a great step forward for the pro-life position. Or pro-choice. Yeah, well, I would say for even the pro-life position, because what this is basically saying is even up to a child in the womb who can do all of the things you just described at 15 weeks, fair game to have a metal shunt uh, shoved into its skull, uh, eviscerated, dismembered, and uh, evacuated, all the while feeling pain. So For the last seven weeks. So the, the fact of the matter is, uh, I, I don't even know what the logic was behind proposing something like this at that particular point. But uh, the, the point of view that uh, we share on this program is that uh, life definitely begins at conception from a biblical sense that people are people uh, because God has made them in his image and likeness and as such the preborn are worthy of our defense and respect. Argue from the facts, not compromises. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. 
thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.